Welcome everybody to the First Impressions Podcast. We're back. I'm Kristen and I'm with Maggie, newly engaged woman, Maggie. Yay! Hello Yay! everybody! Oh my so god, it's so exciting! It's and, my own awesome ending. Oh my gosh, it's the happy ending that we've all been waiting for. And guys, guys, he read the persuasion letter to her. He did. He oh memorized the first couple, he memorized a couple lines from it. And he got down on his knee and said, you pierced my soul. I'm half agony, half hope. And I think I actually missed the second part because when he said, you pierced my soul, I went, oh my God, and started freaking out. <laughs> There's a video of it happening. So it happened in the airport and someone's videotaping it kind of from a distance. And there's this point where he's down on his knee and there's this point where her hands fly up to her face and her mouth becomes a perfect O. And you know, <laughs> she's just... I go, oh my God. And then I couldn't hear what he was saying after that, but it was more often. And then people, people were yelling, say yes, say yes. So I just yelled out, yes, of course. Yes. Was he really half agony, half hope, or did he pretty much know you were going to say yes? He told me he wouldn't have asked if he didn't know I was going to say yes, (laughs) but he was super nervous. It was so adorable. Um, he was like shaking and kind of hesitant. And that's why he was speaking so softly that when I said, oh my God, I couldn't hear what he was saying because he was so nervous. And it wasn't until after we left dinner, like we went out to dinner afterwards and had some champagne. And so maybe three hours later when we were walking out of the restaurant and he said, oh, okay, I finally feel calm now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was very beautiful. It was very sweet. It was just very nice. It was very... Great. And thank you to everyone who on our Facebook page left kind words and congratulations. I'm so happy to share happy news with everyone. Mm-hmm. I feel like Jane at the end of Pride and Prejudice when she just says that she's so happy to make all her dear family happy. That's really how I feel. Oh my gosh, yes. And I remember we were texting back and forth right after it happened. And I, I said some version of like, could you believe things would end in this happy way? I could and I do, which is from, of course, the movie. But uh... <laughs> um, I think I'm the one who said, could you believe that things would end in this happy way, Kristen? And then you responded, I can and I do. No, you said something else. And then I, sure? t- yes, go okay. back. Let's look at the, let's okay, look at- I'm going back. We must have. Back to the videotape. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I will just point out that the last uh, text I sent Kristen was discussing the topics for today's podcast, which are sex and death, the most metal of all Jane Austen podcasts. Yes, it's a metal, very metal podcast today. And I just want to thank everybody again for bearing with us through the um, movie commentaries, because I know they weren't like podcasts that we prepared for with lots of academic content, blah, blah. There have been some things going on in our lives that have made it hard to do content heavy podcast but now I'm finally back on I'm gonna say the horse that's just a cliche I'm back on the horse (laughs) of reading Jane Austen the metaphorical Jane Austen horse which is of course wearing a bonnet and very demure Um, are you riding side saddle I'm riding side saddle yes that's right Um, okay so Kristen as always Kristen is correct when it comes to matters of great doctrinal import (laughs) So she texted me, you pierce my soul. I texted her, I am half agony, half hope. Oh, Lizzie, to know that what I have to relate will give such pleasure to all my dear family. How shall I bear so much happiness? And Kristen responded, 
you are each of you so complying that nothing will ever be resolved on fate. No. I could believe things would end in this happy way, and I do. So she's very sweet and one of my besties. And Kristen, I should take this public opportunity to ask if you'd be a member of my bridal party. Yes, I accept a thousand times. Yay! Yes. Yay. <laughs> I guess I'm going back to Virginia again. Yay! Yay. Unless you want to have your wedding in Boise. No. <laughs> okay, anyway, so anything else we should tell everybody before we get started? Let's just head right into it. So I want to uh, thank Lona, one of our early listeners, for recommending What Matters in Jane Austen by John Mullen. I was aware of the book, but I, because there are so many books out there, it wasn't at the top of my list, but she said it was amazing. And she was so, so right. I adored this book. I love this book too. Every page, every page, it was just like, yes, yes. I think I posted a picture on the Facebook page of my copy, which is now so heavily annotated that it's just a forest of flags coming out of the side of the book. And many of them say like, whoa, or have three exclamation (laughs) points on them or just... Because it's so satisfying to read somebody just lay it all out. And he has a way of just laying it all out, Mm -hmm. organizing the information in a way that it's easy to make comparison and contrast, bringing in stuff from her letters so you can see Mm -hmm. the actual relevance to her life or how it was for her. And making these connections that just blew my mind. A lot of them just blew my mind. And then I was really interacting with the text and agreeing or disagreeing and I took out a lot of post-it notes and wrote down my thoughts and wrote why. So I'm really excited to talk about it. It's just, it was an awesome book. Highly, highly recommended. I thought each chapter was like its own doctoral thesis. Oh my but God. But was only like, you know, 15 pages long. Yes. So and I was I... just reading it and I was like, like my mind is being blown <laughs> over. It's like a gif of just my mind blowing over and over and over again. And Maggie started reading it before me because I was preparing for this brutal job interview. And so she was emailing me. She's like, what are you, how are we going to do this? Because there's so many topics we could never cover this all in one podcast. And so we sort of settled early on, on just taking two topics and covering them. And so today we are going to cover, oh, as Maggie said, sex and death, the most metal. (laughs) I'm doing air guitar, but you can't see it. (laughs) which were both fascinating, fascinating chapters. And so we're going to start with death. Death. The overall point of, well, there are many points, many valuable points. However, one point that John Mullen returns to several times and fits everything to a theme around is this idea of mourning. So, right, what mourning was, Mm -hmm. was when you went into mourning, you wore either all black or depending on the kind of mourning it was, you might just wear certain black articles, um, depending on how close to you the person was. But anyway, putting on mourning and putting on all black is to symbolize that you've had a loss, right? But it's this very public symbol of, oh, I've had a loss. It doesn't necessarily mean that the character is grieving or even that they know anything about grief at all. Putting on mourning really can distract from the grieving process in some cases can completely mask the fact there's no grieving going on in others. Like another example is Mr. Weston. So when Mrs. Churchill dies, right? Frank's mother dies. Mr. Weston is very estranged from her and has been putting down her illnesses, just hypochondria. And then when she actually dies, it's not that he's sad. However, he resolves to himself that his mourning should be as handsome as possible. 
meaning he'll go all out for her um, because he's sorry that, you know, he was wrong about her being, you know, just a hypochondriac. But it's this sort of substitute for actual grief. So death is just another mechanism by which people can prove their social status and importance. It's yes. just another opportunity to to, to bring one up. Bring attention to themselves. But also yeah. one point that he makes that I thought was so good and, and important is that when he, when she says in her when Austin says in her novels, oh, like Lady Susan, for example, she was four months the widow. What that means to a contemporary reader of Austen, they would immediately know, see in their mind's eye, that she was dressed all in black. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is when they're reading about Lady Susan and all of the flirtatious stuff that she's doing, it's even more sort of uh, repulsive, scandalous, scandalous (laughs) because she's a widow. She's all in black. She's still mourning her husband. And the same thing is true of Frank Churchill, right? He's going to be in mourning for his aunt. But her death has released him and made him the happiest of men because now he's finally able, he's finally independent and able to marry Jane Fairfax. Oh, I also thought it was interesting how the author, who, by the way, I actually thought was a woman for a long time when I was reading it. I guess that's on me. I just figured someone with so much insight (laughs) (laughs) often would be a woman. And I I think we had talked about that in past podcasts about how men are kind of left out of our community a lot. But anyway, I get off track. Uh, Another thing he mentioned, which struck me, I hadn't realized until it was pointed out, is that there aren't any, you know, quote, on-screen deaths really in the book. There are even very few deaths that occur during the course of any of the stories. And they're always like very tangential characters. Right. So there's the grandmother in Manfield Park that um, kept them from putting on the play. Right. There is Mrs. Churchill, Frank's aunt, and also, um, aside from the death in the very beginning of Sense and Sensibility, where the dad dies, right. what other death is there? Because there's one more that he talks about happening off screen. This is Dr. Grant? Dr. Grant, Dr. Grant, exactly, um, which is sort of a- From Mansfield Park. A more comedic death, because Austin has described him all along as this glutton. But Mullen's That's the way to go, point. by the way. Oh, Totally. <laughs> Just if you're going to go, just have three great institutionary dinners in one week. Go big or go home and then go die. (laughs) Hey, at least you lived. She died doing what she loved. She liked eating. (laughs) Eating too much stuff. It was too bad for her. I found this really hilarious meme that I shared on a friend's wall that it said, why should I go big if I could just always go home? Why is this even? (laughs) Can I just go home? Okay, I'm sorry. Here, I what found were you one saying? of my notes that so here I found one of my notes that actually encapsulated one of Mullen's points, and that mourning is supposed to remind you of the dead, but in Austin's books, the dead seem quickly forgotten. Yeah. So in this chapter, there are a lot of examples of the dead seeming forgotten or mourning being preemptory. But and I want the- I want to take it even farther than that because one of the things that always struck me in reading Austin, even from a young age is how she highlights that some people are waiting for other people to die. Right. Some yes, exactly. That's what I was going to say. not living until other people have died. And, like and, and Edward? Yes. Edward Ferris is an example. All of these young men can't marry the women that they want or really have their own lives because they're waiting to inherit. So Edward is one. Uh, Willoughby is another, strangely mm-hmm. enough, because he's waiting to get Alanum. 
oh, you know, Ed, Edmund Bertram will never inherit. And Mary Crawford is waiting for Tom to die because that's how Edmund can inherit, right? Right. So when he some, gets very sick, right? Yeah. Some people, I mean, the way that Austin's society is set up, and she highlights this over and over again, is that some people are just waiting in the wings and hoping there is an incentive to hope that your older relatives will die. And that's almost a happy event. Uh, Mrs. Churchill is another example when she dies and Frank is finally free. It's really pernicious and, and really twists people's feelings about their elders. And, you, you know, I mean, we're human. You know, the, the idea is that they shouldn't feel this way and they should respect their elders and all of these wonderful good things. But they're human and they want to get married and they want to live their lives and they're just waiting in the wings. The other thing that is not mentioned in this chapter, but what has always struck me about Northanger Abbey is in the very last pages of Northanger Abbey. We hear that Eleanor Til Tilney oh, finally, yes, gets yes. To marriage, finally gets to marry a guy that she's been into all this time because of his unexpected accession to title and fortune. And what that means is that somebody died. Yeah, somebody died. Unexpectedly. <laughs> so if I was going to make, I would pitch PBS or the BBC, like a Regency era, um, like Murder, She Wrote, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where like a Jane Austen-y character, I think we talked about this with like Death of Pemberley, like a Jane Austen-y heroine, just like all of these people end up getting killed in the neighborhood. But uh, the number one motive would always be to inherit, <laughs> right? It was right. so easy to murder people back then because everybody died of anything. And it's, it's so true. And there was all this convention and pomp and circumstance about it. But it actually says in this book, which shocked me and floored me, that one fourth of all children in the Regency era, of course, it was worse for the lower classes, but one fourth of children would not make it to adulthood. And yeah. half of those died in their first year. What the reality kind of pushes back against. So we talk about how Austin, her characters are so real and things like that. But in a lot of ways, the worlds they inhabit in terms of the daily details are not that real. And so like we view her, at least I do view her books as an escape. And I'm sure at the time they were even more so, right? Because you could live in a family where like two or three siblings had died and yeah. People were always sick and right, right. her death was just not, there's never like a, even when you think Marianne is going to die, like it doesn't happen. Right. Yes. And in they, real life, that would have happened. Like her oh, fever sure. is just not going to like break. Like, Oh my God, it's here. Like that. Yeah, right. 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 No, it's so true that these books are notable in how much they're not touched by that kind of tragedy or only tangentially touched, like with the death of um, the Dashwood father patriarch. Right. No, and it's that's so more true. of a plot device, right? Because that has to kick yeah. off. <laughs> right, that has to kick plot. off the book. And much more frequent is death used as part of ritual. So like one example mentioned here is that the Elliots are sort of estranged from their cousins, the Dalrymples, because of death. Because when there was a death in their family, Lady Elliot had been very sick and they had forgotten to send a condolence note. And then, you know, when Lady Elliot died, they didn't get one back. And all of a sudden, the connection is severed because the conventions of mourning haven't been obeyed and the conventions of condolences haven't been obeyed. So rather than the emotional impact of the story having anything to do with somebody's death, it's about the social fallout that that can have. 
in Austin's letters, he also points out, Mullen also points out um, a lot of passages in Austin's letters where she talks, she speaks of death because it was happening around her all the time. I mean, she was not insulated. She knew about this tragedy that was happening all around her and chose to make make books about, you know, when things are functioning as they should. That's kind of interesting, right? When things are functioning as they should and everybody is alive, yeah, our society is still pretty stinky. Um, yeah. <laughs> our society still is not great for a lot of reasons. Even when all the wheels are greased and everybody is healthy, people are unhappy because they're waiting for other people to die. And it, it's sort of a disease. And, you know, even there's another example, even when the Ravenshaw's grandmother did die, the first thing that Tom says after that story, when Mr. Yates is telling the story and you know, he's like, oh, we get, didn't get to do the play. Tom says, well, the jointure may comfort him, which is up the money. <laughs> that it's yeah. For Ravenshaw. So it's, when we talk, when they talk about death, the talk about the, the idea of inheritance is never far behind. I agree. I have nothing else to add, Kristen. You did such a good job. <laughs> oh my God. I can't stop talking about this. And I hope I'm talking about it in an organized way because I'm so jazzed up by all the themes here that I'm, I'm talking in circles. I feel like I I'm keep going no, back. I was to so interested point. in what you were saying. I just, that's why there was dead air. Cause I was just no. like, wow, like taking it. I totally agree. <laughs> well, here's another thing. Here's another thing. I made a list of people who are waiting for other people to die or cravenly oh, okay. hoping people would die. And one of them is the Lucases waiting for Mr. Bennett to die, right? Because oh, yeah, Charlotte, yeah. so as soon as Charlotte gets engaged to Mr. Collins, what does Lady Lucas do? She's speedily calculating how much longer Mr. Bennett is likely to live. Yeah. Right. And also the same with in the beginning of Sense and Sensibility, they're trying to figure out how long an like an annuity yes. because uh, the, everyone in the family is so healthy. Like, well, if we pay an annuity, that could last forever. It, calculating someone's lifespan is just part of their your financial arrangements. So yeah, and you know, in Austin's writing, the ritual of putting on mourning was something to distract you. There are a lot of references to dressmakers and how am I going to make my black dress and what is it going to be made of and should I pull another dress to pieces and have it dyed? There's even a little witty poem that Austin wrote, pretended um, to write as a dressmaker. So here's a, here's a passage. so many tabs. It's just at one point, it's just every page. Oh, it is every, yes, it's every page. Yes. Yeah. So here's a, here's a passage from the book. Reading through Austin's letters, you might think that she cared too much about the sartorial implications of the deaths of friends and relations. When the mother of the Austin's close friend, Martha Lloyd died, her dressmaker was apparently slow to make up the morning dress that she ordered, prompting Austin to send Martha lines supposed to have been sent to an uncivil dressmaker. So the poem is, Miss Lloyd must expect to receive this license to mourn and to grieve, complete ere the end of the week. It is better to write than to speak. <laughs> and, and there were different kinds of mourning too. I was, I was always struck in persuasion when it says that Elizabeth Elliot was wearing black ribbons for William Walter Elliot's, you know, Mr. Elliot's wife who had died. Right. And she, this is a woman that she never met and that the marriage actually ex estranged the two families. And she still put on partial mourning for this relative who has died. That's how conventional, you know, how much convention is involved in this. And I also didn't know this, but there's like a secondary mourning period in some cases where you just wear gray or you just don't wear bright colors. So you can go 
progressively back into your normal wardrobe. So Kristen, remind me, I think that in the Lady Susan movie adaptation, didn't they have her in black at the beginning? Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. I'm trying to think she may but have she been segues in black. out of it. I think she segues out of it. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember, but she definitely starts out in all black, which do, which did make a little bit of a contrast, you know, from her, her you know, and then her daughter saying, marriage is, <laughs> Frederica goes, marriage is for one's whole life. And she's like, well, not in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was just so cute and so good. I'll have to um, watch that one. Yes, short, short morning. Here it is. Full, for a woman, full mourning might involve not only a black dress, but also the rejection of sim- shimmering silk for a duller bombazine. Short mourning for distant relations was comparable with second mourning and was re- expressed rather by lack of any color than by wearing black. Second mourning could also involve the wearing of gray clothing, black edging on dresses or black ribbons, black bands on hats and cuffs. And there's a... Uh, there's another passage where Austin wrote a funny letter where she had encountered um, an acquaintance of hers. And she says he was dressed all deeply in, in black that either his wife, his mother, or himself must be dead. <laughs> 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 it's like, how full is this morning, morning going? But this was a thing, you know, I know for sure that this carried on into the early 20th century where you would wear morning because and I know this because of Anne of Green Gables so side side tangent here were you did you read all of the Anne of Green Gables books I read definitely read the first one several times I still own it I'm staring at it on my bookshelf right now I think I loved the Anne of Avonlea adaptation so I read that one and then was like this is not anything like because they had actually taken like the next three books and kind of combined them um, so I think I did read through like Anne of the Island, I yeah. think. Is that one? Yes. But it was so a long what, time ago. It was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, Anne of the Island. And what's funny about those books is that every progressive book is a wider net. So first right. she's Anne of Green Cables, then she's the town, then it's the, you know, island, PEI. But it, if you read to the end of the series, there's a book uh, called Rilla of Ingleside, which is about her daughter, Marilla, oh. whose nickname is She named her daughter Marilla. Yeah, isn't that nice? Oh my gosh. These books are just so affecting. But, um, and, you know, hopefully everybody's okay if I spoil these books because they've been around for a million years. But Anne's son- Also, the ship thinks at the end. What's that? I just ruined Titanic for you. The oh, ship yeah, sinks also, the ship. yeah, and also Juliet definitely is not going to survive. Uh, <gasps> I, I was in Baz Luhrmann's, that movie when it came out, Baz Luhrmann's adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, and we were young. I was like in middle school. My friend turned to me halfway through and she goes, oh, she's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most famous story everybody knows. and, and But I, I got it too because I was feeling the same way. I was feeling the impact of, my grief before it even happened because you know they're in love and they're young and whatever it's just Claire Danes and those doe eyes oh my gosh Paul Rudd is in that movie too which I had totally forgotten yeah and he looks exactly the same as he does now he has not aged in the slightest it is amazing oh Um, well yeah it's true he's like it yeah Okay. Anyway, but back to back to Rilla. <laughs> tangent within tangent within yeah sorry (laughs) (laughs) that's okay that's how we roll that's how we do um in Rilla of Ingleside Anne's son, Walter, dies in World War I. Oh, yeah, is, that was in that other terrible movie. Oh, that, 
which was the oh, well, she goes looking for Gilbert. I can't remember if they have their son. Yeah, that one was fake. That third movie that's fake. It's not in the books. It's a total made up adaptation of the characters. <sighs> but anyways, Anne's son Walter dies in World War One. And it's one of the most affecting deaths for me in YA literature. That death and Ruby Gillis's death, and there's a third death that I won't reveal just in case this makes anybody go back and read the books. I was I can stand anywhere and just be thinking about it and just start crying. I was making a pot of spaghetti once and I started weeping. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the reason I bring this up is because Walter dies and her, uh, his sister Rilla does not put on mourning. She keeps wearing colors and it's a minor, there's some comments about it in the village. It's a minor scandal and people look down on that decision. But she explains that she and her mother and, you know, formerly of Green Gables, um, knew that Walter loved life and loved color and wouldn't have wanted her to be in all black. So it was, so I know it was still going on. That sounds like something someone says when they just don't want to wear all black. (laughs) Well, like, it's like, oh, they would want us to go ahead. Yes. Somebody dies right before a big event. And it's always like, well, they, that's what they would have wanted for us to go ahead with the event. My mom would come back and be like, why are you not wearing all black for five (laughs) years? (laughs) Oh man! Well, I thought this is what you would have wanted. No, <laughs> your mom, your mom would definitely not have wanted that. No, she wouldn't. I'm just kidding. Yeah, but, but there is there is something we can say about Dr. Grant, and here's one of the um, points, side points, really, that Mullen made that I don't agree with. They're talking about Dr. Grant and how he, you know, ate himself to death, but. Mrs. Grant goes on and she's fairly happy. She has, it says, a temper to love and be loved and Mary is living with her. So she gets kind of a nice ending. And Mullen says we're supposed to extrapolate from this that Mrs. Grant didn't love Dr. Grant. No. no which I completely dif- dif- disagree with. She was such a loving person. Of course she loved her husband. Um, but he also makes the point later that they're not having sex, which is something I could maybe buy a little bit more easily. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think there's any reason to conclude that. But then I, I wrote to myself, like, did she pull a Charlotte Lucas? Because mm, when you mm-hmm. think about it, um, everybody, you know, uh, uh, Lady Bertram talks about how Mrs. Grant got married to Dr. Grant without ever having been handsome. You know, she was not an attractive woman. And Dr. Grant ma- proposed clearly, and maybe she pulled a Charlotte and was like, well, this is my one chance. You know. Well, that also reminds me, there's someone else you should add to your list that Charlotte is probably just waiting for Mr. Collins to die <laughs> so she can have some peace. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good point. That's a good point. And um, these marriages, these unsuitable marriages that are forced together because of financial circumstances would make you want your partner to die. Absolutely. Yeah. Like that dry joke that Mr. Bennett makes, like, let us flatter ourselves that I may be the survivor. You know, yeah. there's a little, a little hint of that in, in that joke as well. Yeah, it is, it is telling that the two characters who die during the course of the novels are more convenient, conveniently yeah. dead than alive. Um, oh, and, and when, when Dr. Grant, you know, the reason that Dr. Grant comes to Mansfield, we all know what that is, right? Is because Tom and his gambling debts. So this happens at the very beginning of the book where, where Sir Thomas is like, I blush for you, Tom, because he's had to sell the living to doc to someone else to Dr. Right. Grant. And Tom's first thought when he sees Dr. Grant is, oh, you know, f- first impression, he's a healthy man of, of 45. 
But second impression is, oh, he's a short-necked, apoplectic sort of <laughs> fellow who will soon pop off. So he doesn't that have to feel guilty harsh. anymore. That Tom's waiting for Dr. Grant to die, so he doesn't have to feel guilty about Edmund and his gambling. Um, I do think that, and I think this is a fair criticism, especially of Northanger Abbey, though she was very young at the time when she wrote it. I think that death, deaths that occur in Austin, other, I mean, sense of sensibility aside, it's often a convenient plot device to wrap up the end of the book, right? I mean, right? yeah, like Frank Churchill's aunt, definitely Northanger Abbey. It's like the last, oh, and guess what? This person died and fortune and title and everything's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. It just seems to be kind of a, like kind of convenient tying up of loose ends to have someone die off screen. For sure. And yeah, although we did talk about how, common death was in her life so maybe it would have seen yeah. a little less contrived but yeah no it's to it's totally especially in emma a very convenient plot device but here i'm just paging through the chapter to see what else i may have uh i might have forgotten to talk about here is one you know who else is in full mourning when they start to court other people oh, oh yeah is fennec yes in persuasion but he had just has just lost fanny harville and so the harvilles are most likely in full mourning and, and he would be too. And yet there he is, you know, flirting with Anne and then falling in love really quickly with Louisa Musgrove. And it says here, it, it gives peculiar force to Captain Harville's exclamation to Anne, poor Fanny, she would not have forgotten him so soon. So, you know, the idea of mourning is that it stops you from escaping the memory of the dead person, but a lot of people in these books feel totally comfortable in pushing it aside. Isn't there, I just think it's so, there's such a weird almost hypocrisy in the society of the time. Like what you were saying with these elaborate mourning rituals and rules and all these things. And yet it, no one would really think twice if you, especially if you were a man, if you almost immediately remarried because of all these other practical reasons, right? Yeah, like right. a man can't take care of himself or run a house or how else is he supposed to have sex? Because God forbid. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just like, oh, we're going to have all of these strict societal rules about it. But yeah, it's just fine. Yeah, it, it really releases you from the obligation to grieve. And wearing mourning is this, 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 this token. It can, it can free the mourner from any obligation to grieve. In, Mr. Elliot in Persuasion, somebody makes the point in, in here that, I don't think it was Mullen, I think he's quoting someone else that most of the characters, oh, Linda Bree, Linda Bree rightly says, most of the characters would have been wearing black in some form throughout the novel. And that's mm -hmm. certainly true of Mr. Elliot, right? He had not been seven months a widower. And there's actually a passage where Anne says, every time she sees the crepe, black crepe around his hat, she believes he cannot be pursuing any amorous scheme so soon after the death of his wife, because that would just be really off-putting to Anne. Um, but of course he is because yeah. this is another oh, sign. Oh, Anne. This is another sign of weakness. Oh, Anne. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Anne. Yeah. She she's believes. such a little. She's such a little <laughs> delicate flower, isn't she? Oh, girl. <laughs> People are not as good as you think they are. Well, and then the the, the the entire story of persuasion, right, turns on this conversation about grief and mm -hmm. how long grief should last. So the entire point of the book gets brought to a head by her having a conversation with Captain Harville about who can grieve the longest, whose feelings last the longest, men's or women's. 
I just, I thought that was a really powerful point that Mr. Elliot's grief is just juxtaposed. His lack of grief has juxtaposed itself against Anne's true grief at not being able, at losing Frederick. And that is a true grief that of course she, yeah, and she has to keep it private. That is a private grief. She can't be wearing black for her lost engagement, right? Right. But she wants to be, I mean, emotionally, that's what she's doing. But that's a kind of grief she can't share with the world where all around her, people are putting on these fake shows of grief. Well, it's like Eleanor, right? Eleanor Dashwood? Oh, yeah. Where Marianne like, gets to carry on and be yes. ridiculous that she has to keep everything bottled she up inside and how hard inside. that is. There is a chapter very early in um, What Matters in Jane Austen in this book about sisters and about sisterly estrangement. And that was such a powerful chapter that I wrote all over it. And if we, if we do another podcast about the book, I would love to go back and revisit the relationship between sisters and sisterly estrangement or lack thereof. But, but yes, that's another private grief that exactly it's not a socially accepted, acceptable mm -hmm. grief. Whereas, it's like a, a, a far relative who you've never even met dies and you have to wear and then you're putting on, yes, colors, on. but yet you could be emotionally estranged from someone and there's no, you can't make any acknowledgement of it. So it's not just death that we're talking about here, but enrichment by death. And that permeates Austin's novels and is the driver for most of the stories. And I think that's one of the things she was, I don't know that she was consciously being critical of it. I mean, she was being critical of it, but I don't know that she had any ideas that would, were going to change the world. Like we can't, <laughs> you know, women need to be able to work or something like that. I don't think that she was a radical in that sense, but describing her story and the story of many other young women in those terms is something she definitely was after. I agree. <laughs> if you, um, if anybody listening or, or Maggie, if you have the chance to see, I think Helen Gadsby's, um, she's a comedian, her new comedy special on Netflix called Nanette is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And she goes into why she's quitting comedy. Oh. And one of the reasons why is that she's not taking care of her story. Hmm. Because she's mining her, she, she is a lesbian and she talks about how traumatic it was to grow up in Tasmania in Australia as a lesbian and how homophobic that society is and all of the horrible things that happened to her she's mining was uh mining that, that for jokes right and doing comedy about it and that was not allowing her to move past it and she is like I need to have more respect for my story I need to have more respect that these things actually did harm me and you know making jokes about them is not healing me that's really interesting yeah, it was really powerful. But anyway, I, I think I see a parallel with Austin there where she's like, these things are harming me and I'm taking care of my story. Her story was that if we, if we you know, say that Tom Lafroy really would have married her except for the financial situation, I'm going to search to make sure that I've, I've said her name correctly. Hannah, Hannah Gadsby. Sorry, not Helena. Okay, Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, it's on Netflix. But anyway, anything else you would like to add about that? No, I just enjoyed listening to you talk about it. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, I'm no, I'm sitting here with a big grin on my face. It's so interesting. It's just how I felt about the book. It's just, like I said, like it just continually blew my mind. Just connections that I hadn't made. And I don't know, I think this guy, his encyclopedic knowledge could give you a run for your money, Kristen. Oh yeah, oh for sure. Oh, I, I would never match wits with him. And also his his knowledge of her letters. 
because yeah. while, while I have skimmed a lot of her letters, I, you know, I haven't studied them in depth. Um, I don't know. We could probably take him on, on the Jane Austen trivia game. We do pretty well. <laughs> It'll be okay. Maybe we should challenge him to a match. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, have you watched the 1995 Pride and Prejudice adaptation 33 times, <laughs> sir? <laughs> I said good day. <laughs> Are we ready to move sex. on to sex yet? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk Do about it. Let's, okay. Oh, I won't weird. <laughs> Okay, Kristen, let's keep the singing to me, okay? I love <laughs> you. You're wonderful. No, my voice is hot, is, is just awful. No, um, it's not. I'm just saying you could work on that song in your singing classes. Oh, yes, I could. I do. I, um, I was taking singing lessons. I actually stopped due to scheduling conflicts, but oh, um, no. I know I, I just, my goal is to come on this podcast and sing. Oh, so we could do that sometime. We could do it <laughs> just like Buffy. We'll do a musical episode. Oh my God. A musical episode of the podcast. Oh my God. We'll just download some karaoke tracks. Just me and you karaoke, baby. Not Are you guys? I'll just sing that song. <laughs> it's a Do you think they make a karaoke track for that? Um, probably not. Yeah, that's I know, too bad. Mozart. I know for sure it's Mozart. Uh, just get an accompanist. Let's just get a, <gasps> a pianist. Oh my God, Kristen! <laughs> I just had a thought, and I know Bay is not going to go for it. Um, but he has friends. He used to work at an opera company, a nonprofit opera company. So we definitely wanted to see if we could get some maybe friends of his who are opera singers perform during the ceremony. What if we did that song? Oh, you should do that song. I love that song. It's so beautiful. I'll I'll suggest it and we'll see what happens. Stay we'll, tuned, gentle listeners. All the Austin fans will just be thinking about the look. I know, right? I'll have him look at me and smile just like at that <laughs> special moment. Whatever, he'll probably be like shaking like a leaf the whole time. Faye doesn't like being the center of attention. Uh, he's like, can we do this in a way that no one will ever look at me during it? <laughs> do you have you thoughts for your first dance? Oh, uh, yes. I don't want. I don't want to say too, too okay. early though. Yes, keep it under. It's wrap. probably nothing that you would expect. <laughs> monster Mash. No, it is not the Monster Mash. Um, it is a very romantic song. It's not one of your like typical. It is a very typical wedding song, artist, or should okay. I say duet? But it is not, oh, what the hell, I'll just say. I'm pushing for, and it pains me to say this, but I love this song. Uh, Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran, Everything Has Changed, if you know that one. It's kind of like, oh, God, I rolly Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran, right? But it's such a cute song. And it's really how I feel. It's really fun. Oh, uh, we do it at karaoke fun. together all the time. Oh, um, you guys. I know. You just just so for some context for our listeners, I'll just explain that Kevin and I were going to dance to the Monster Mash for our first dance because he's the same way as Bay, and he just wanted to make a joke out of it because he hates being the center of attention. And I loved the idea of because we're just goofy, silly people, and it seemed appropriate. And Kevin's mom squashed it. She was so upset but by the idea. She yeah. To this sadly. day, to this day, it upsets me. You guys did not get to dance to this song. I remember because I was a bridesmaid and Chris, well, not a bridesmaid. I was like, I did a reading, I think. I can't remember what I did. We did something. I don't think you had actual bridesmaids. Anyway, I I remember hearing about this, I think at the reception, when of course I was also a little drunk. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) where is she? (laughs) In a Rachel Riley, that's my mother moment of, 
where is she? Let me go talk to her. This is, she can't treat you that way. This is not acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> I still find it upsetting. But, yeah. and Bay says this too. He's like, the wedding is not for you. It's for, yes. it's for other people, yes, which I don't really true. agree with. Uh, <laughs> it's for everybody. <laughs> it's, yeah. So anyway, moving on. That's the Monster Mash joke. But Kristen, let's talk about sex. Mm-hmm. I won't sing the song, but I'm ready to talk about sex. What were, you, what were your overall impressions of this chapter? I thought it was really great. Of course, I thought everything was great. There were a couple, I didn't, I wasn't along for the ride with him on all of the things he pointed out like I was in the death chapter. There were definitely things, especially when it comes to married couples, whether they were or were not doing it that I had never considered and as playing into their relationship in the way that they responded to one another. Uh, it's just, sometimes you just need someone to make all those connections to be yeah. like, well, he hates her, but they've yeah. got five kids so clearly (laughs) there's Um, a lot of sexual coding in austin's novels and in in preparation for this i always also quickly went back and read a little little bit of unbecoming conjunctions which is that like conjunction junction (laughs) conjunction junction okay now i'm not gonna sing schoolhouse rock for everybody unbecoming conjunctions is a work of scholarship about sex in austin Amongst other things, but yeah, and if I were on the ball, I would tell you the author, and I do have it here somewhere, Jay Hyde Stevenson. So if you don't have it, that's it's one to check out. But as many people have pointed out, as many people have said, there are lots of words and lots of descriptions in the books which can be construed to have a little bit of a sexual connotation. And one of Austin's early points is that when Catherine Moreland's figure gains in, quote, consequence, mm-hmm. or why the word stout might be used of Lydia Bennett. They got boobs. <laughs> yeah, right. And Austin, his point in this chapter is Austin does require the reader to think about sex happening, to know about sex, to understand that it can happen outside of marriage. And she means us to understand that her characters understand that too. They're not completely innocent. And nobody wa- nobody is, nobody was. So this is a realistic point. And some of his early points in this chapter I absolutely loved because there is a lot of sex implicit in Austen. But one of the early things in Pride and Prejudice is when Charlotte Lucas writes to the Bennets, there was a lot of curiosity as to how happy she would profess herself to be. She would dare. Quotes, air quotes, happy. Yeah, yes. How happy she would dare pronounce herself to be. And in the in the Davies 1995 adaptation, I think, didn't he add in the part where Lydia and Kitty are giggling about it? And they're saying like, he'll read Bible oh. verses to her every night before bed. And then they're like, with clearly the implication is like before sex. Yes. Oh, here. Uh, there is a curiosity to know all sorts of things, including how happy she would dare pronounce herself to be. The sexual implication is both entirely absent and pressing in the text because, you know, that's what they're thinking about. And yes, Davies did, as he always does, he brings the sex to the surface and does make them, uh, he'll be reading, the joke is he'll be reading to her from Fordyce's sermons every night before they go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) And they giggle. I also thought that it was very interesting how he, and this was kind of always impl- like I, when he, it was not a revelation to think about this, but he pointed out multiple circumstances of it, that there are many couples that are together because of sexual attraction. And that's the reason they got married. 
mm-hmm. like the Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and the Palmers and Sense and Sensibility, yes. where someone, ma- and usually it's, you know, a man married a very silly mm-hmm. woman, clearly because yeah. she was hot. And it was like, I got to tap that. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, Austin points out that money makes bad matches, but actually sexual attraction makes bad matches too. And she's pointing that out just as much. I completely agree. I was just trying to to think of some more. I just had one on the tip of my tongue. But yeah, the Bertrams. Are there any hasty marriages in Austin that work out? I think all the heroines end up with people that they have known for a while. They've gotten to know. They've been through stuff with. They know them really well. I, and when there's a hasty wedding, it's usually because of sex, right? It, yes, exactly. Shotgun kind of thing. And, you know, the one I was just thinking of is Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. It was sort of a hasty engagement or a secret engagement and we're we're kind of left to wonder about how happy they're going to be because yeah. his behavior is sort of unreformed even at the end he's sort of making jokes that make people uncomfortable and that's and like then, me oh my god that's why i'm such a frank churchill apologist <laughs> it's because i make jokes that make people uncomfortable in social situations oh Whoa. Yeah, my mind has not been blown, not by a discussion of Austin, but by this realization of the flaws of my own character. (laughs) She helps us know ourselves better, that's for sure. Oh, but here's another example. Here's another example of a love match gone wrong is uh, Frances Price and her lieutenant of the Marines, Fanny Price's parents. Right. uh, As well. So that doesn't work out. The drunkard, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a catch. He's a catch. What do you think about Mr. Yates and Julia? Because they're not really brought together by sexual attraction. I guess his, he has a sexual attraction for her. I don't really know. It's been a while. Uh, well, I mean, I know you know Mansfield Park like the back of your hand. I'd have to go back and reread to see. that. Isn't that also? They run off to Scotland, right? Yes, they do. I mean, it seems pretty clear that that was to go bang, right? Well, and she she kind of thought this is my one chance. Like, yeah. But it's unclear. I mean, I know that she thought the restrictions on her, but given by her parents, would become much heavier, and she would never be able to get out amongst people. But I also don't know if her reputation would have been so bad that no one would have ever considered her seriously. Because of Mariah, you mean? Because of Mariah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of if someone if you. <sighs> How do I say this? Because I know you hate fan fiction and I'm actually not a fan. If there was some way to travel through time and have Jane Austen write for you more story, I think it would be really interesting to learn more about younger sisters. There's a lot of younger sisters in these stories who are kind of on the periphery and then are just sort of mentioned. The things that happen to them do do not really take center stage. I mean, obviously Lydia's elopement, but like, what about Kitty? I wouldn't like, I mean, I know we get at the end of the novel, oh, you know, she grew up for the better and blah, 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 and Julia and people like that. Like there's, and Margaret Dashwood, hello. Yeah, and Susan Price. I want to know what's going on. You know, one of the points that Mullen makes about the ends of the novels is that in the Victorian era, which of course is later than the Regency era, novelists had a habit of jumping straight from a courtship to an epilogue where Little children are playing right. at the feet. And and Austin never does that. Yeah. She never gives us the future with the kids. 
and we know, you know, that she was well aware of the dangers of childbirth. I mean, she was hearing forever and again. I mean, her, I think her sister-in-law actually died in childbirth. She doesn't sound like someone who is particularly looking forward to that. She doesn't sound like someone who's particularly interested in kids. And she wasn't interested in that for her characters either, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, none of her heroines like sit around daydreaming about, <laughs> about the kids I'm going to have. Well, they've got bigger problems. Honestly. Yeah, that's true. So I also thought with this chapter, the sex chapter, I thought that the author, he was also going out of his way, I think, to lessen the amount of sex that might have been happening in the books. I mean, I'm not like a shadow plot person who reads between the lines to see things, but I seem to remember reading the chapters that there are people he's like, and I think we can infer that there was no sexual relationship. And I mean, I guess it depends on how you define sex, which we don't need to get into too deeply, but I mean, come on. And I think he is more interested in this chapter in talking about punishment for yes. illicit sex. Yes, he, he especially spend, of women. Yes, and, and, and he does spend some time talking about how Lydia, while she doesn't have it really a happy ending, you uh, know, everybody accepts that she lived with Wickham and was having sex with him before they got married. And now it's just been retroactively legitimized by their marriage. Whereas sex, when you're already married, mm-hmm. carries a much, much heavier, harsher penalty. When we see with, which we see with Mrs. Rushworth, I thought, and this was a, this is a point I'm going to bring in from another chapter, the chapter about names. But one thing I thought was always so fascinating about Mansfield Park is that after Mariah gets married to Rushworth, everybody only refers to her as Mrs. Rushworth, mm-hmm. not even Mariah anymore because she's so connected to her husband in the eyes of society that she's her, her, her individual identity is sort of scrubbed away. And right. even H- Henry Crawford has this thought, oh, I'm going to make her Mariah Bertram in her treatment of me and not Mrs. Rushworth, this sort of di- more distant character. But yeah, everybody there, she's only Mrs. Rushworth and she's so heavily connected to the idea of her marriage. That's well, her it, new identity. It's the same thing with Emma, with her um, governess. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And, and so, but when, when she takes on this mantle, this new identity, having sex outside of marriage destroys that sort of new identity. And I think that's why it feels even more momentous. I think what I found most fascinating about this chapter was the, and this was a very small part of it, but I remember reading it and being like, ooh, that's good, <laughs> is when we, when he's talking about the different societal understandings of sex with men and women and like what you would be shocking and what wouldn't. And he says, you know, do you really think that Mr. Knightley, do you really think that all of these male hero characters were virgins when they married? And he mentioned that, you know, reading letters um, and diary entries of men at the time revealed that many times they would you know, go to prostitutes or go with servants and things like that. And they would struggle with these sexual urges that even with men were told were wrong. And it's interesting to think about whether these characters that we love so much, you know, I'm sure that they're, Mr. Knightley's much older than Emma. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that he had a sexual history. And yet that's fine. But obviously Emma can't. No, no. There's a discussion about this and a reference to this 
in Emma, fascinatingly enough, and we always say how it's a book where Emma is unaware of sex, but actually in the end where Harriet's parentage is revealed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's um, Emma is horrified to find that she's not the daughter out of wedlock of a nobleman. So Harriet has illegitimacy and it's not bleached. The stain of illegitimacy unbleached by nobility. So um, another of Mullen's points is that there's sort of almost in, in Austin's books a sort of new or a modish acceptance of the fact that these noblemen are going to have love children, as Mrs. Jennings put it. There is a, a widespread belief that Eliza from Sense and Sensibility, the girl who gets pregnant by Willoughby, a widespread belief that she's Colonel Brandon's natural daughter. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and, I don't and- think that it's too... too um far off a reading of the text to infer that either. Yeah. And I always wondered that, that statement about illegitimacy unbleached by nobility. I always wondered whether that was Emma's opinion or whether it was Austin's opinion Mm -hmm. or both, because we know Emma's a snob and in the book, we're getting her thoughts presented as fact, right? And it, it always seemed like such a crass sentiment to me, or, you know, at least a hypocritical one that I, I wondered if Austin was trying to criticize Emma a little bit by showing us her thoughts there and her her sort of short-sighted value for popularity, value for people of quality, yeah. or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, money gives you the ability to basically do whatever you want. Yeah, do whatever you want, right? And everybody still loves you because you're rich. Yeah. 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 To you, so let me ask you, I think he also, he talks about Isabella Thorpe and... Oh God! What what is uh Tilney's older brother's oh, Captain Tilney. Captain Tilney? In the movie, like it's explicit they did have sex, and I think he argues uh, Mullen argues against it. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, I'm I'm a little bit with Mullen in that the point of the story is just to show she had high hopes for a flirtation that didn't come to fruition. Not necessarily that she's sexually ruined. I think that Catherine a- certainly doesn't think that they did. No, yeah, Catherine's too naive to to think that. And you know, it's Davies. You know, he's just taking things to their their logical conclusion sexually. <laughs> Mullen says that in Mansfield Park, Henry Crawford has sexual longing for Fanny Price. Like that's why he's fallen for Fanny is that he's sexually interested in her. And I would, I do not agree with that. I would actually argue the complete opposite, that Fanny is pretty enough, but Henry has sexual longing for Mariah Bertram and he sure doesn't fall in love with her, Yeah. Um, but he falls in love with, with Fanny for her virtues, for her, her personality qualities. But there is a passage that um, Mullen points out where Henry Crawford tells Mary Crawford that he's going to marry Fanny. And Mary says, I know that even when you ceased to love her, she would still find in you the liberality and good breeding of a gentleman. And it's sort of this acknowledgement that married men are going to get tired of their wives and look for sex elsewhere outside marriage. And that is also, you know, and then Mary and the Crawfords are so modern and have modern sensibilities, but clearly that idea was out there. No, I, yeah, I agree. I, sorry, I don't, I just agree with you, Kristen. I think you're genius. <laughs> And what's interesting to see who does have a good sex life, like the Mr. and Mrs. Bennett always seem to have a good, they talk about how they expect the heir to be born many years after uh, Lydia was born. 
And so we're just gonna like, keep at it. Yeah, we're just, just gonna, gonna keep, keep at it. it. Uh, why not? <laughs> he's a philosopher about his marriage, but he's also still enjoying enjoying that element of it too. Well, that's one of those weird things with them, right? Where he has like disdain for her, but and we talked about this in the context of the actor in the miniseries. There is still, at least in the in not so much in the book, but they give him like great affection for her still in the movie. And maybe we, I don't know. I think never underestimate the power of like turning off the light and someone finally shutting up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're I, stuck with each other. There's no divorce, you know. Yeah. I don't know if we can equate like sexual attraction with affection, like, no. actual affection. I mean, the Palmers are another excellent example where she gets pregnant. That's a point of the book is in a point yeah. that she has a baby. The thing about, about the Crawfords and their liberality, and especially Mary Crawford's liberality on the, the point, points of sexual liberation, is that she gets mad enough at her uncle when he brings his mistress under his own roof that she leaves. Mm-hmm. And Mullen sort of says that this makes her virtue, you know, her idea of virtue a little bit hard to read because if she was so offended by that, you know. But actually, I think she's just offended because she's no longer the woman of the house. Yeah, no, I you think know, you're right. I don't think it's the sex. Isn't this, isn't this something that Edmund uses to like justify his liking her? Like, yeah, she's, she's still see, she's still appropriate. She yes. gets it. Yes, yes, yes. That she was, she had that feminine loathing. You know, then this is this comes right after her joke about rears and vices, which right. Mullen is taking at the commonly you know accepted innuendo about the Navy. He is taking that just as everybody else does, and so Edmund is reassuring himself about Mary's sexual virtue at the same time she's sort of making these this body joke which okay, I think that joke is 50% of the reason why Mary Crawford is one of my favorite characters because <laughs> that is an amazing joke yeah it it's is very cute. it's very funny oh well, Mary Crawford is very witty she has a lot she of, is she, amazing she I think we talked about this how she's like the dark version the dark timeline version of Lizzie yes <laughs> yeah exactly um Oh, here's something I want to talk about. Um, when we're talking about women uh, in Austin and their awareness of sex is that they're, like Mary, they're able to make sex jokes and, or at least get them and find them funny. I mean, obviously Fanny Price isn't fine. Mary's joke funny, but that's Fanny. That's Fanny. But there is a passage in Persuasion that always seemed so inscrutable to me. And then I looked up the meaning and I was a little bit shocked when um, she runs into the Admiral, Admiral Croft, this is after Louisa has fallen in Lyme and gotten her head injury. Um, and Admiral Croft, however, is still under the impression that Frederick is courting Louisa. So he meets up with Anne on the street and they start talking over Louisa's injury. And he says, this is an odd way of making love. Uh, this is um, breaking a head and giving a plaster, truly. And I hmm. and it it's like he says it like it's a quote or or some kind of idiom and I never understood what it meant. I mm-hmm. looked it up, and um, breaking a head and giving a plaster, it means like breaking a maiden head and then giving a plaster of warm guts. Uh, that's no a plaster what? of warm guts. Yes, it's sex. It's about taking her virginity. It's about. But break- what does plaster of warm guts mean? Well, plaster was like one of those old timey medical interventions where it was just like something slapped on you to be like hot with a salve or whatever. I think that that's my understanding of it, but a plaster of warm guts means just putting bellies to bellies. 
Oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, I know. And in the next line, it says Lady Russell was put off by this, but Anne was delighted by his simplicity of manner. So she's, <laughs> she's clearly familiar with the plaster of warm gods and what it means. Yeah. And it's, you know, th these people were making sex jokes to one another. And of course, it didn't make it into their literature all that often, but here it is. You know, it's also, it's also interesting to me how uh, making love was not like we always use that now as like a beautiful way of talking about sex, right? But you would also. <laughs> You would call people your lover and things like that, even if they were just, even if you were just, you know, quote, dating or courting. Yes. Um, and so I think a lot of times when people read the books and they don't know that, they're like, whoa, <laughs> slow down there, buddy. It's like, no, that was just the way they would refer to each other. Yeah. I think in, in, um, in Emma, there's a part in where they're in the carriage, she and Mr. Eltner in the carriage, and he begins, quote, violently making love to her or making right. violent <laughs> love to her or something. And if you didn't have that context, you'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah, that exactly. Like, I had no idea Austin was like this. I should read all these books. <laughs> yeah. And now yeah. I'm just picturing like poor um, Gwyneth Paltrow with Alan Cumming, like his like grossest. Oh, <laughs> Please oh my refrain God, from I the just, intimacy I him, whispering. <laughs> I just love Alan Cumming. I just rewatched Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh my God. Oh, He's that movie's so a goddamn triumph. <laughs> they had never seen it. They had oh never seen it. And my oh. high school reunion is in three is in two weeks. Oh my God. So I made him watch it. And did he love it? Yeah, he was like, this movie is really dumb, but it's also really good. <laughs> like you get it. Classic. He gets it. Classic. He gets it. Well, and Alan Cumming is so good in the end when he, when they do the dance routine. Oh, I know. Oh my God. We should make our first dance. I joked around with him. I said, okay, so now you need to learn the choreography of this for my reunion. And he's like, ha ha, you're kidding, right? Said, yes, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be a whole lot. We can do a whole podcast on my 20th high school reunion. I'm sure. <laughs> right. Just write a book about it. Like you're Austin. So like skewer everybody's pretensions and everybody's vanity, everybody's silliness. Empty conversation. I, well, I did tell Bay. I was like, please, please, please propose to me before my high school reunion so I have something to talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah, good call. Yeah. <laughs> well, Maggie, you're a freaking lawyer. I mean, what else do people want? There are a dime a dozen around here, Kristen. I, I don't know. You I can't swing think... a cat without hitting a lawyer. It's still a great I never really understood that saying either. Swing cat. <laughs> Why would you be swinging anyway? Why would you be swinging cat? Anyway, know. if anybody out there knows the origins of the idiom swinging, you can't swing a cat without dot dot dot. Please feel free to write in to our Facebook page and set us straight. I I, sh I guess I should Google it. I'm a librarian, and uh, I am very guilty of asking questions to other people that they should rightly respond to by sending me the link. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Kristen, see, you're blowing it because this is a way for us to engage with our listeners. Oh, I see. I'm trying to increase our social media profile by encouraging people to reach out to us. Mm. So if they, if someone is listening to this, they'll be like, oh, I totally know that. And they'll send it to us. But do now you, you blew it. Do you want to increase our social media profile? I always want to increase my social media profile. You see, you don't supposed... make any money off of this. So Yeah, but how am I supposed to know how much value I am oh, unless people right. like me? 
but hey, yes, that's right. How how do I know how valuable I am as a person unless I can measure it by social media interactions? I, need I love it. Validation. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Okay. I buy that. I how will we know that people enjoy our podcast if we don't hear from them? You know, how will we know what Fifty Shades of Grey knockoff Austin fan fictions we should read? Kristen, have you been peeking in at the Wee Chief? I have been peeking in at the Wee Chief. We'll get We're to it. We're not there the yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> one, one more thing that I that I want to say about sex. Yeah. We already made, and 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 it's not really about sex, but um, oh. I, I just want to tell this one anecdote about this chapter. So I think we can all agree that the saddest sort of outcome for any of Austin's characters is for Mrs. Rushworth, for Mariah Bertram, where she goes off and she's shut up in a remote private establishment with Mrs. Norris. And um, John Mullen says, duly divorced, Mariah is sent off to, sent off to some Sartrean hell of confinement. <laughs> and I didn't know... What I mean, I, I knew Sartre, Sartre. No exit, Kristen. No exit. Come on. I I, I was vaguely familiar, so I I googled it. I, I looked him up on Wikipedia, and his deal was that existence is absurd and life has no meaning. Yeah, <laughs> that pretty much describes a life with Mrs. Norris, doesn't it? I have almost I have very little memory actually of high school English, but for some reason. My sophomore year existentialism unit has really always stood out in my memory. Oh, and so I remember a lot. And I always remembered, oh, Kierkegaard, like holodeck theory, right? Wow. So you got to relate it to Star Trek for me to understand it. Where like, oh, so I'm just a holodeck character and someone else's actual mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. How do you know that your reality is actually your reality? Mm-hmm. Like but then that'll get me, then you'll get me talking about Westworld and oh. uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But you know, you know what, you know what fanfic I would read the heck out of is if somebody wrote what happens to Mariah after she goes to this remote private, private establishment, I think she could be walking in the woods, escaping from Mrs. Norris and come across some handsome woodcutter or something. Kristen, that's a gothic novel. Do you even Jane Austen, bro? Oh my god, it's not enough. It doesn't have to be gothic. There are no <laughs> vampires or crap. Is it on a moor? Are there moors windswept? No, no Is it's a, a vampire novel. <laughs> it's a very Austen-esque, orderly, deciduous forest <laughs> in England. Okay, I would read that fanfic, but only if it was Mrs. Norris the cat from Harry Potter. <laughs> Because then she's just like a lonely cat lady. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, this is a, it's about Mariah, not about Mrs. Norris. I know, oh, but think about how much more enjoyable it would be with oh. a fun cat sidekick. Hmm. Or actually a cat sidekick that's just always creeping on you. I just and love like the watching idea. you. I just love the idea that Mariah could find her happiness even under the eye of Mrs. Norris, whether cat I agree. or human. I, Mariah really is sac. I think that he even uses the word sacrifice. Like that character is sacrificed on the altar of social propriety yep. and misogyny. And it's just really sad. Yeah. But I think that's the point Austin's making. Yes. And, and, and Mariah's uh, sex drive is also acknowledged in the text when she's described as having high passions and animal spirits or something Ooh. Ooh. because she does she she goes away with henry crawford for the explicit purpose of just having yeah. sex with them and i i just i think it's so crappy 
that Henry Crawford refuses to marry her. I just think that's yeah. just the craziest. And it says, oh, he feels so much regret or whatever. Well, if he feels so much regret, why didn't he marry her? I know. I prefer to think that Austin, Mariah's outcome is, is Austin's indictment of society's treatment of women rather than her moralizing and punishing one of her characters for behaviors she personally views as bad. Yeah, I would buy that. Okay, cool. That's what I'm going to write my doctoral thesis on. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out over Facebook to John Mullen right now and send him my idea. And then he'll know that he is of worth because someone has used social media to validate his <laughs> Sitting in his inbox or next to his inbox, like just refreshing it, waiting for the comforting ding of another. So, no, so in my mind, he's sitting in like a leather wingback chair. He's got a pipe. He's wearing like a vest, a sweater vest. <laughs> And he has a pipe because he has to have a pipe, right? You have to have a pipe. And his, his uh, phone chimes and he looks at it and he's like, oh, yes, finally. <laughs> I, I actually really hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh my God. What if we wrote to him though and asked him to be a guest on the podcast? I'm sure he's too important. Oh, I but know. how cool he's, would that be? He's way too important for us. Yeah. He should go on Bonnets at Dawn. Does anyone listen to Bonnets at Dawn? I've never even heard of this. Is this another Jane Austen oh, podcast? This is, this is the, the Bonnets at Dawn, Bonnets at Dawn is the podcast, the other Jane Austen podcast. Yeah. That we, I think, we I think our readers have, our lit readers, I think our listeners have mentioned it before. Yes. I think, I think they're probably people who listen to both, but they are, they like put out a podcast a week and they're like super serious and academic about it. Um, okay. Well, if they are another Jane Austen podcast, they are our rivals and I must seek them out and destroy them. So no, sorry if you're a fan. I don't think they, I don't think there's any rivalry. No, I'm kidding. Of course. Well, no, I know you're kidding, but like we, it, we we're a different thing. Like actually when I started this podcast up, I thought we would quit after six episodes and we would do one per book and we would just put them out on the internet for anybody to listen to if they wanted to, if they just happened to find it. So the fact that anybody's listening to it all or, or that we've, we've, we've grown a, like, a little community is just so cool. I just think Oh, cool. see, I'm the opposite. I'm actually disappointed that we're not more famous by now. <laughs> I thought for sure this was my end. <laughs> this was going to be it. This was like my bachelor. You know, reality if I, show. If I had thought <laughs> that, I would have put a lot more effort into editing these bad boys. Let me tell you, because but what's fluffy. more, what's a more mainstream path to fame than operating a Jane Austen <laughs> podcast with full of profanity and bad jokes? Typical rags to riches. Story. I ask you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the American dream. You're awesome. Oh my God. Okay. I think we've lost the plot. I know we have. It's like one of those internet memes, like step one, start Austin podcast. <laughs> Step two, question mark, question mark, step three, profit. Okay, that's not really an internet meme. That is from South Park with the underpants gnomes. Oh, I've never seen that episode. Oh anyway. my God. Okay, just everyone out there in the world, just Google South Park underpants gnomes and you'll see what I mean. Now we've really jumped the tracks if we're talking okay, about I think Park. that Okay, I think that's because we're pretty much done talking yeah, about done. sex and death. Do you want to go um, to the Wheat Sheet? Well, apparently you're already there, so yeah. I guess I'll just join you. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So thank you, uh, listeners, so much again for writing. Colleen wrote us with a really good question that we still can't talk about because we are still not talking about Pride and Prejudice, which is on me. And Isaac, our, our new uh, first-time caller, uh, long time listener, Isaac. Um, hello, Isaac. Hello. Thank you for writing to us. He recommended 
Oh, he, he, he recommends to us to do a movie commentary on, or, or a movie review, not a commentary, of The Sense and Sensibility, the one with um, uh, Dan, what's his face? Stevens. Dan Stevens from Down Abbey. Didn't you hate that one, though, Christian? I hated that one. And, and he, so let's do it. That'll make good podcasting. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he calls it um, charmingly in his, uh, his emails to, or his Facebook messages to us. Uh, sense and sensibility, the bad one. <laughs> no, I, I mean, he's joking where he's playing off of me and I, I had already um, slammed it. One of the things he mentions is Colonel Brandon and the way Colonel Brandon is portrayed, which I did not like either. But Isaac says Davies was clearly trying to make Brandon into a manly romantic hero. And he's, you know, this seems to have worked for some viewers, but I and Isaac were both turned off by this. And and he said, Colonel Brandon, as an unreliable narrator, patriarchal gaslighter, and true villain, is discussed. The theory is discussed in a, a Jasna Persuasions article, volume 32, number two, by Dara Downs. Um, and she's putting forward in, in, her, in her essay an alternate, alternative reading where Brandon is very much not the hero uh, that of, of Marianne's story. Uh, Isaac Alden makes the point about the state of our cultural views about heterosexual romance, like the fact that Davies would take this character and make him into this manly man, this falconer, right? Um, rather than allowing Colonel Brandon to be Colonel Brandon and just be more Alan Rickman. To be Alan Rickman. Yes. Is, is a I mean, why point. even try? Like, I understand that Austin was hot and they wanted to make more movie, but come on, you got yeah. freaking Alan Rickman. They should have just taken Alan Rickman and cut him into the new one. Don't even try, buddy. You're not, it's not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. <laughs> anyway, I thought those were fantastic points, and um, I think that Wait, is the week. Well, we got our 50 Shades of Mr. Oh, Darcy. That's right. Oh, that's right. Yuzini, whose name I have been chronically pr mispronouncing, but it is, it's not Eugenie or Yuzyani, as I previously pronounced it, it's Yuzyani. And uh, that's a beautiful name. name. And it is a beautiful name. And now I'm finally saying it right, I hope. <laughs> anyway, she, um, she got in touch with us to say that she found um, a, a Pride and Prejudice adaptation in a used bookstore called Fifty Shades of Mr. Darcy. I laughed so hard <laughs> when I saw that message. I laughed and laughed and laughed. It was so, just, I'm not going to read it. I'm just imagining it. And it's crazy. Apparently Lady Catherine is a dominatrix in it. Oh my God. <laughs> of course she is. It's perfect. Oh my God. If you're interested in looking this up, it's Fifty Shades of Mr. Darcy by William Codpiece Thwackery. Which... <laughs> Thwackery. <laughs> Which obviously is not the person's real name. I hope it's not. <laughs> um, <thank you. laughs> uh, there is also other news to report in that the Sanditon remake or yeah. not remake. How the uh, hell are you going to make a movie from a book that never got finished? I mean, it's so weird. Just to, I'm interested to see where Davy takes the story. Davies takes the story. I don't think anybody has a good idea about where it was supposed to go. I, mean, I just want to, I'm sure there's a wedding in there somewhere, right? Oh, of course. I just yeah, want to eye roll because in. it's just so typical. I don't know. It just seems stupid. Yeah, it's like trading on the name of Austin. I it's mean, just been X number of years since we've had a new Austin adaptation. So like people are just 
net the British networks are just like salivating for something. Here's Get an them idea. Get them chicken about it. Here's here's an idea, all the literary adapters of the world. Why not make an accurate damn Mansfield Park? Ooh. Why not take actual a book that has been finished and unconvincingly, unsatisfyingly adapted and do a good job? Kristen, why don't you take a screenwriting class and take oh a stab Oh my God, out? I would be terrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to touch it. But It'd be an eight hour movie. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Why not do a miniseries? I mean, right? why, why not? not? Yeah. Why not do an HBO series? It's a nice Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. I know that Mansfield Park will draw just as big of a viewership. What? Just throw some dragons and ice zombies up in this place and we can do something (laughs) with it. Mansfield Park and ice zombies. (laughs) Yeah. And the last piece of news is that just to follow up on what Kristen was saying earlier about her brutal job interview, dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah. I got the job. She got the job. I can't even believe it, you guys. I got the job. I am terrified. I start on Monday and I'm so terrified because I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm You're a librarian. Be great. There's so much good news around the first impressions offices these days. Oh, yes, there's, there's a lot of a lot of good news. Isn't that nice? It's such uh, a nice change. It's yeah, well, right. And um, it's great to be in summer and not doing classes and being able to podcast with you and uh, be, you know, be all serious about it which I've been feeling guilty for, for doing those uh, movie commentaries. I don't know. I mean, some people seem to like them, but I, I think I just, those are probably our most popular episodes. I just to know, be honest. I know in my heart that it's me taking the easy way out. So I've been really beating myself up about it. So anyway, oh. well, how about this? Everybody. You can see them. You can see it as doing a favor to me because I love doing the movie commentary. Okay, good. <laughs> so you can see it as doing a favor to me. And we still haven't finished Pride and We haven't just finished yeah, discussing Pride and Prejudice, series. the book or the miniseries. Yes. Uh, we have lots of meaty topics to dig into in the future. And on that note, um, what is it we say now? We have, del- we have delighted you long enough. Unless you have anything else to say, Maggie. No, I was just going to say bye when we say bye. So I was waiting for you to say it. Okay. Bye. 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 Guys. We've delighted you long enough. <laughs> bye. <laughs> That's the end. That's all, folks. <laughs>